Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving, right? It's done. Now let's move on to the important holiday. Merry Christmas! We are into the season. I'm so excited to, to be here with you, and I am excited uh, for this sermon series that we're getting ready to go in. Um, so we're going to do this, this Christmas season, we're going to do a uh, connect the dots, if you will, of Christmas passages. So what we're going to be doing, uh, you can see that our, our theme for this, this year is Christmas is coming. And, and so what we're going to do in conjunction with that is we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament. And we're going to find different different places where it shows us that Christ was to come, right? Advent is the season. We have the Advent wreath, and, and we, we light the candles, and we do so in anticipation of when we get to light the white candle in the middle, which represents for us the fact that Christ has come, that, that Christ is with us, that Emmanuel, God, is with us. And, and we like to focus on those New Testament passages. I do. I love the Luke passages, the Matthew passages, the John passages. I love those, those passages with the what we think of as the traditional Christmas story. But you know, when, when it came to Paul and it came to some of these, these New Testament writers talking about Jesus and proving from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah, that they didn't go to their own writings. They didn't go to the New Testament passages. They went to these Old Testament passages and showed that, show, to show that Christ was going to come, to validate that Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. So this year, that's what we're going to do. We are going to go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at some passages and then connect them into their New Testament counterparts where we see the prophecy being fulfilled. Because from the very beginning of time, from the point where we failed and messed everything up in the garden, God gave his promise that Christmas was coming. That though everything was broken and there was sadness and sorrow that had entered the world, eventually a son would come, God's son would come, to make things right. And the creation that we had broken, God would restore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we turn our attention to his word, to the hope of the coming of Christmas and the Christ. Father God, I thank you so much, so much for your goodness and your grace to us, for your great love, which you've given to us so graciously and so freely. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this week and in the weeks to come, Lord, that you would reveal to us the depths of your love and the glory of your goodness and greatness as seen through Jesus the Christ. Lord, speak to us now. Encourage our hearts. Remind us of who you are and your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm guessing that many of you or some of you are slowly now coming into the, the Christmas spirit. And so perhaps in your car you, you periodically have some Christmas music going. Or maybe as you were decorating, Bree, on Friday, did you play a little Christmas music to get yourselves in the, in the spirit? Absolutely. I have been in the spirit since November 1st when Sirius XM released Holly. And so I've been listening to those songs nonstop unapologetically. I love them, and it doesn't even bother me hearing the same songs over and over again. I love the Christmas music. And one song that you might hear during this Christmas season has a verse that goes a little something like this. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. Gonna find out who's. 
Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, I'm not here to debate with you the reality of Santa Claus. Let me just tell you that Santa Claus was, in fact, a historical person, and he stood in one of the great church councils and punched Arius in the face because of the Arian controversy. True story. Go look at it. My favorite meme on Facebook says, my name is St. Nicholas, and I came to give out gifts to good girls and boys and to punch heretics in the face, and I'm fresh out of presents. But it's not really about the Santa Claus. It's not really about the reality of Santa Claus or what you want to think about that. I'm not here to debate with that. I love St. Nicholas. He is my patron saint. And so I love that story, though. But I do think that the song has something in it that we've kind of got to deal with. If that song is, in fact, correct, if, if there is some saint that is checking a list who's been watching you and I all year round, all of our lives, and trying to find out who's naughty or who's nice, we have to borrow from another Christmas song to get to the reality of what's going to happen for each of us on Christmas, because we're getting nothing for Christmas. That's the reality according to the Bible. If God had a list, the naughty column would have all kinds of names. Every human that ever existed would make the naughty list. And the nice column would have only one name on it. The name of Jesus, the perfect son of God. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And we continue to see this refrain repeated throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But there's good news. And the good news is that God's goodness and the salvation that has been made available to us has, quote, nothing to do with whether or not we've been good or bad. It has nothing to do with the quality of our actions or attitudes. Fortunately, being on the naughty list is not a barrier to the goodness of God. Instead, as we will see in this morning's passages, the salvation that God has made available has everything to do with God's promise and his power to deliver on that promise by providing us a savior in spite of the shame that we each bear. If you have a Bible, look with me at Genesis chapter 3. Our first Christmas passage of the year is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1 and going to verse, uh, we'll go to 20. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some some to her husband who, who was there with her, and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me? She gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. I've entitled this message... Christmas Eve, not to be confused with Christmas Eve. Punctuation matters. Christmas, comma, Eve. It's a declaration to Eve in the garden just shortly after creation that Christmas was coming. But we see very quickly after the creation narrative starts that something bad happens. And we get the revelation that I made just a few moments ago. And that's this. We're all on the naughty list. We're all on the naughty list. The passage starts with with this interaction between Eve and the serpent, which makes you think, and I don't want to go too far down this tangential path, but I've been thinking it all week. Like, God doesn't necessarily take the the ability to talk away from the snake. And the passage seems to indicate that that it's a snake. So, like, was it like a Disney World thing where animals could just talk and you could, like, have a conversation with your dog? Like, I wonder what Evie would say a lot of times. I think it's probably good that she couldn't talk because we'd get into a lot of trouble. But there's nothing in Eve when this snake starts talking that she's like, whoa, what's going on here? It's almost as if it's normative. And, and here Eve has this conversation with this, quote, serpent. And it all revolves around this question, what did God say? Now, it's not not all Eve's fault that we're all on the naughty list. She was, in fact, the first to jump on the crazy train and to ride off the rails with Satan leading the way. But the the serpent doesn't make Eve do do anything, right? We, We notice in this text that the serpent doesn't force Eve's hand. The devil never made anyone do it, something I like to say often because I want to 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 take that excuse away from you. The devil never made you do anything. The devil doesn't have to. 
All the devil has to do is point you in a direction, wind you up, and let you go. We will do the rest ourselves. History shows that to be true. The crafty serpent, though, asks a simple question. Did God really say? Did God say? Well, what did God say? What exact, If we're going to evaluate this and, and understand what God said, we should probably look and get it from the mouth of the proverbial horse itself, right? What did God say? So let's look back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. This is what the Lord said. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so we know now what God said, right? This is what God said. Now let's compare that to what Eve and the serpent say. What did God say? Verse 1 tells us that the, the serpent was more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field. And this crafty devil just tweaks what God said. If you look at, if you look at what the devil says, he doesn't, he doesn't totally disassemble dis, God's statement. He just changes it a little bit. He asks a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God did, in fact, say those exact things, but not in that exact way. I've, I've heard that said before, that the devil knows the word of God better than you or I ever will. And there's a truth to that. That's why it's so important for us to understand the word of God, because that word that would be a light Unto our path, right? That would guide our feet can very quickly turn into a train coming to run us over when we don't follow it correctly. The devil just tweaks the wording. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's really just the inference that he makes. Well, what does Eve think that God said? We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. This is true to this point, right? This is the exact quote of what God, in fact, said. Don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden. But then Eve continues. Don't even touch it or you will die. Now, where did Eve get that? I don't want to get too far off into the conversation because if you look, Eve isn't actually there when God makes this command. And so we, we can make the, it's not a far assumption to, to think that Adam is probably the one that told her. And even here we have this slippery slope thing going on. Did God say, don't, don't eat of any tree? Well, God did say we could eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. And God said, don't even touch it. Well, that's not actually what God said, is it? God said, when you eat it, you'll die. But God never says, don't, don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. And the serpent pounces in verses 4 and 5. And again, what the serpent says isn't all wrong. Actually, we could argue that what the devil says is more right than wrong. From an academic standpoint. But the heart of his statement is misdirecting and leading Eve 
off base. Verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die. Okay, well that's clearly wrong. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No lies are told other than you will not die. The fact is that there is a sense of, of a revelation. There is wisdom that would come from Eve eating this fruit or Adam eating this fruit. And they would have a, a sense of understanding that they herefore too did not have and did not need. It's an interesting thought that that's, we'll save for later. But, but you realize that, that what Adam and Eve sought after was not actually a bad thing. What they want is wisdom. And what the scripture seems to be telling us is there are certain types of wisdom. There are certain things that we maybe don't experientially need to know. There are some things that it should be good enough for us to just be told, right? Like, I, I, don't, need, I don't need to experience putting my, my hand inside a toaster while it's on to know that that's probably a bad idea, right? That's, that's something I shouldn't have to try for myself to get a, a good understanding of. Just, just someone telling me should be good enough. All wisdom is not necessarily good wisdom, But what the devil does here is, is he gives Eve this, this question in her mind, this, this, this attitude, this understanding, or this thought. He plants this seed of doubt. And the seed of doubt is this. Is God holding out on me? Is God holding back something good from me? Is he hiding something really good that I really want? Makes me think of of Michaela. A few weeks ago, Michaela was in town, and Michaela, as we were talking, um, Robin and I talking back and forth uh, off to the side, heard us say that some of her Christmas gifts had come in. Mind you, this is our 19-year-old adult daughter. And so later that evening, as we're walking around the house, where do I find Michaela? But in our closet, wholesale, digging through everything. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she didn't even try to hide it. I'm looking for my presence. You're, you're an adult kid, but here she is. And, and there is, is, this is a truism. There is nothing that will motivate or mobilize us as humans like being told we can't have or do something. There she is looking through it. And, and Eve, you've got to think, is, is dealing with the same thing. She, she sees this thing. She understands that it's good. And she has this fear that maybe she's missing out. Maybe, maybe she misunderstood God. Maybe, maybe the instructions were just passed along in, improperly. And, and again, another side note, Adam is standing there the whole time, and we don't hear nary a thing from homeboy. He's like, oh, maybe he's right. Eventually, he takes a bite as well. In this case, though, something that we need to know is that Adam and Eve already have the most important parts of what the serpent advertises. There is nothing that the serpent offers that they need or that they don't already have. I mean, think about it. What does he tell them? God knows that when you eat this, you will be like God. But wait, but wait. Aren't they already like God in all the ways that are important? Look back at the beginning of the creation, and it says that, that God made man out of the dust of the earth in his image. They already were like God. 
beyond what any other, other creature on earth was. The, the, the only creature to be imbued with the imago dei is humanity. They didn't need to eat the fruit to be like God. God had already given them that. God only gave them one prohibition, prohibition for their protection. At the start, God outlined that everything was right. That everything in creation was good. And that there was only one wrong. Only one thing not to do. The fact is that they have all the knowledge they need, don't they? You can eat all of these things and do whatever you want in the garden. Just don't eat from that tree. That's it. That's a good deal. Both Eve and Adam, again, who had been watching the whole interaction, buy the lie. And in verse 6, they bite the big one. I see an interesting side effect that is relevant to Christmas. In this verse, we see the first signs of materialism begin to corrupt something good God has given. They weren't content with what God had provided, and now they seek more. They eat the apple, and what do they need now? Well, now they do have wisdom. But notice that the wisdom that they now have is not good. Because what happens as soon as they eat the apple, or fruit, whatever the fruit is be, it's not actually an apple. But what happens as soon as they eat the fruit? They're like, oh, I know that I'm naked. Not only am I not like God, but Adam and Eve are looking around, and they're like, I'm not like you. Not only am I not like God, I'm not like you, and I'm not like you. We better cover some stuff up here. This is not okay. And then it starts this, they, they take those clothes, and then God creates more clothes, and then they've got to work the ground, and then there's this, this desire for more that you begin to see snowballing from this first sin in the garden. Because what God had given, what God had provided for them was not enough. We could stop, and that could be our first Christmas message, but we don't get to Jesus there. But is that not part of the problem? Is it not, like, it's, are, is the media not telling us all over the place in every commercial that we see, whether on our phone or our TV, that you need this new thing? You need more. You need this new iPad because it's got more power and it's got a better screen and a better connection. You need this new phone. You need this new plan. You need this new Whatever, this car, and if any of you want to buy me a Lexus and put it in my driveway with the bow, I won't complain. Seriously, whoever gets that, right? Like, if, you, if it's you, I'm not being hateful. Like, good for you. But I always see that commercial, and I'm like, really? Come on, who? Who? Everything, though, is broken because of their actions. All of creation is broken. And most importantly, all of their relationships are broken. Verses 8 through 10, we see that their relationship with God is broken. That as the Spirit of God is coming through the garden, the, the, the literal word where it says, but they heard God coming in the cool of the day. That's, that's actually not the best word for that. They, the, the ruach is coming. The wind of God is blowing through the garden and the presence of God is among them. And they, they hear that presence of God coming and they run and they hide. Because they don't want to be seen by God anymore. They know that they've broken that relationship. Verse 12, their relationship with one another is broken. 
The man said, the woman you put here, she did it. They start blaming each other and throwing each other under the bus. Verse 13 and all of the rest, their relationship with creation itself is broken. Humanity has this continued trend of putting our trust in the wrong trees. And trying to hide our naughtiness from God. The the only tree that we can put our trust in that, that will take care of us is the cross of Christ. There is no hiding from God. There is no running from God. The only thing that we can do is throw ourselves in the mercy of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed on a tree. Even there we see the reality of the need for Christmas because we are all on the naughty list. But this is what I love about this passage here in Genesis 3, is that the promise of Christmas is proclaimed in the curse. Even as God is pronouncing punishment on Eve and Adam, God gives some fine print revealing that he has a plan to make it right. Even in the curse, God says, Christmas is coming. And the countdown to the advent begins immediately following the fall. What a great God that we serve. That at the moment of our failure, he has a plan for our restoration and the power to deliver. But we see the curse here in verses 14 and following. And the curse Resulted in a list of gifts that everyone gets, but no one wants. Reminds me of when I was in West Virginia, we used to do one of those white elephant Christmas gift things. If you like white elephant Christmas things, like I just want you to know that there is a special corner of Hades for you. There has to be. And you're going to be the only one to enjoy it. I hate white elephant Christmas gifts. It creates anxiety in me. It's the only part of Christmas I hate. And, and I know the part of the reason I hate it is there's always that one gift in there that you can't get rid of because it's given out from year to year, right? I, I remember in, in um, West Virginia in St. Albans, they had a, a plate that they would give out. And it wasn't like just a normal standard human plate. It was like this huge, enormous, oblong plate thing that had the most, and I love Christmas, so understand what's about to come out of my mouth and how, how horrible this thing must be. It's the most ugly Christmas scene you've ever seen in your life. It was an abomination to the Lord, even with Jesus on there. And it had belonged to this church matriarch. And and so they passed it back and forth, and you'd think you'd be able to pick this thing out, but you couldn't. And once you got the gift, you almost had to display it because it was like this church heirloom. It was, as it says in one Christmas movie, it was the gift that kept on giving all year round. A gift that nobody wanted. But once you had it, you had to pass it down the next year. We see these gifts coming. In verse 14, we see that there is something for the serpent, right? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. Notice that the serpent goes from being craftier or wiser than all the animals to being more cursed than all the animals. Now all the animals are cursed, but the serpent gets an extra measure. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put Enmity between the woman and be- between the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent has to crawl on his belly, eating dust all his life. We get to verse 15 and we see that there's something for Eve. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I want to point something out. This is an impact of the curse. People like to use that verse as a means to, to, to establish a patriarchal system. That's not the intent here. That this is a, a sign of brokenness. That we will then want to rule one over the other. It wasn't meant to be like that originally in the garden. There was this partnership that didn't even have to be stated. The man and the woman were perfect partners, God said. That they perfectly met each other's needs and filled in for one another. And now God says, that's broken. You're going to have very painful childbirth. And you're going to have problems in your relationship with one another. Verses 17 through 19, we see that there's something for Adam. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The earth would no longer cooperate. And notice there is a shift of the locus of where Adam is getting his food. If you go back to the beginning, where was Adam getting his food? From all the trees of the field that God had planted in the garden. And now God says, you don't get to, not only do you not get to eat from that one tree, you don't get to eat from any of these trees. You've got to produce your own food. Go plant them in the dirt. And you fight with the weeds to make your food now. You'll make your food, you'll produce your food through pain. No longer would they get to walk through the garden and just pick their food from good trees God created to feed them. Now they'd have to provide food for themselves from unfriendly fields. And finally, death. They would ultimately die and return to dust. These are hideous family heirlooms that have been passed from generation to generation ever since. And whether we want it or not, we get these same quote-unquote gifts that Adam and Eve earned for themselves. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. We looked at this not too long ago. But in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people, because all have sinned. We see that death comes because all sin. Not just because of Adam's sin, but because of our own sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone whose account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, and even over those who did not sin by breaking the command as Adam did. Who is the pattern of one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. 
nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we see that, that at, Paul here is looking back, right, to Christ. But, but Paul is talking about something that God promises to provide in Genesis. There is, again, fine print in the contact, contract. The promise of God's favor is couched within the curse. We find it in verse 15. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. God's going to put division between the snake and between humanity. Between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. Now we could, we could get into the theological wranglings and academic you know, musings that, that many like to get into. Is this why people aren't supposed to like snakes? And I would say, absolutely, it is. But I think that misses the point. The point is not about the division between us and literal snakes that might hurt us, that, that walk the ground. I think that that is a picture of what our fear should be of the devil. And not fear, that's probably the wrong word. But there should at least be a distance, a division between us and the devil. God alerts us now to the craftiness of the serpent and the destructive intent, intent and ability that he has. I will put, and note that it is the Lord himself that puts this sense of division. Now God, once again, in his grace, even in this moment, right following the fall, God gives man and women the wisdom they need. I will put this wisdom in you. God, even in spite of the failure, gives them what they need and provides through his power something necessary for their survival. It is a curse to the devil, but it is a gift to Eve and to humanity. The second part of verse 15, we see that there's going to be this opposition we saw in the first part, but now we're going to see where that, that opposition is ultimately going to lead. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we need to understand that when the Bible says serpent, it's not talking about your standard garden variety garter snake. This is not just some benign, harmless snake that we, you know, the snakes are good. First of all, curse you for saying that to me ever in your life. You've never had a six foot black snake fall off your garage door onto your face. If you had, you wouldn't say that. But here we see that it's, it's, not, it's not just about the, the snake's not, it, it takes away bad things. No, this is not that kind of snake. This is the kind of snake that if it bites you, it can kill you. Serpent carries with it the connotation of a poisonous, venomous snake. This is not just a, oh, not a big deal, I got bit. This is a, I got bit in the foot, I might lose said foot. I got bit in the foot, I might die. That's what's being said here. This is a fatal blow that would be dealt from the serpent to the man, to the offspring, a deadly bite. 
But then it carries on to the last part of verse 15. And it says, you're going to bite his heel. You're going to strike at his heel. But he's going to crush your head. Well, there's no question about that one. No one comes back from a squashed head. You can wriggle around for a little bit, but you ain't walking away from that one. This is a death blow. Without question, this son of Eve would come and would, yes, be struck with a fatal blow, but he would rise again to strike a mortal wound to his enemy, to destroy the devil's work forever. Now, everyone's going to want to take note of this because something special is going to happen this morning. As I open the Schofield, King James Version of the Bible, I'm going to read a couple of verses because I like the way the King James phrases this better. And it creates a bridge from what we see here in Genesis to the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah. In Genesis 3, 15, in ye old King James, it says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, in the Hebrew... The word is bruised both times. It is the same word that is used. Now, you can, you can make the argument that the way they translated it is correct because, remember, Hebrews this this very colorful language. But I like the use of bruise in both cases because it is the same word. Well, now let's flip over to Isaiah. If we flip over to Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 through 6, it says this, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when he shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now I want to note something, and this jumped out at me this morning when I was reading this passage, thinking about today. Where does this sun, quote unquote, come from? It comes from the ground. The dry, deserted field. Even there, there's this imagery that connects back to the curse of Adam, right? You're going you're gonna to develop your food and what you need from this dry desert ground, and it's going to fight you. But God says, no, 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 no. Not only is it going to fight you now, but I'm going to fix it. Out of the ground is going to come this tender plant. Out of this dry ground is this thing that is a beauty that is going to come. It's not going to look beautiful, that people should desire him. And it says this in verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as if our, face, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We keep going, and we know that to be a Christological passage that is used in reference to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And it connects directly back to what we see in Genesis chapter 3. That here this this. One that would be bruised, that was promised to Eve. This son of, son of Eve was going to come eventually. And now we see in Isaiah that they flesh it out a little bit more. Peter takes it a step further in the New Testament. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25. It says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here, Peter is quoting that passage of Isaiah. I love that. You see this development from Genesis, then to Isaiah, and then to Peter. And it all ties nicely together, showing us the picture of this Christ that would come, this son of Eve that would come and would crush the serpent. And through his wounding would rise again to destroy the power of Satan. Jesus came to earth as a human child, lived a sinless life, and died an unspeakable death to restore our relationship with God. Within the curse, God planted the seeds of promise that would bloom into God's favor. Here we see in Genesis 3, God pronouncing a curse to Eve, right? But in that curse to Eve and the serpent, it says there's going to come a son. Well, now we flip over to Luke chapter 2. If we flip over to Luke chapter 2, we see another declaration from God. Excuse me, Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am still a virgin? We see God pronounces the curse to one woman in a garden. It says eventually there will be a child, her child. And I, I think the wording is coincidental there, but I love it. Because you see this parallel, this mirror image where you see the negative for Eve that then is mirrored on to, to, to Mary as a positive. And it is the son of Mary without any help from Joseph. It is the child of God. It is God himself giving a son that would then correct the error. The curse tells us that there would be pain in childbirth, but through that pain would come a child of promise who would bring favor not only to Mary, but goodwill to all of humanity. And Jesus is the child who would make us right. God promised to send his own son to fix our brokenness. And the gift of God that we will see in the cradle in the weeks to come would eventually be placed on a cross to bring about our ultimate victory by grace through faith in him. The purpose of Christ's coming is presented throughout the story of his birth. But it also carries the promise of pain. Notice that both Eve and Adam are presented with the reality of their problems producing pain in their lives. 
And through Christ's pain, our salvation would be provided. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name would be Jesus, and it tells us clearly why. Because he will save his people from their sins. That again connects us back to the curse and the promise of restoration, the crushing of the devil. The Son would restore creation. He is Emmanuel, God, come in flesh to once again walk among us as he had before in the garden. As promised, the son of a mother would suffer a fatal wound from a serpent. But he would rise again, forever destroying the curse of sin and the power of death. He would make available the gift of life, the gift of God's presence, just as it had been in the garden. Christmas is coming. And as we look forward, may we look back and remember the promises of God, of his glorious provision and the restoration of his favor to all who would believe through Jesus Christ. We followed the wrong voices in the garden, but God, in his providential will, made a way to provide salvation for us through the coming of the Christ. The Gospel of John says it like this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light now shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, meaning John. John came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory of God, and you and I can see it and experience the presence of God even now. And even in the midst of our brokenness and sin, God has made a way for us to find restoration. 
even though each of us are on the naughty list and we deserve nothing for Christmas or any other time for that matter, God in his grace has made the greatest gift ever available to us, life and life eternal. And God continues to seek us out, to seek and find us, even though we hide from him, to try to hide our shame and our brokenness. And God seeing us for all we are offers us wholeness, And forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come and born in a manger to die on a cross, bitten, receiving the fatal blow from the devil, but rising again to crush his head that we might have eternal life. Father God, I thank you so much for the glory of Christmas and the coming of Christ and the hope of our salvation, which is found in him. God, I pray, pray that you would continue to remind us of your goodness and your provision to us through Jesus. In this season, Lord, as we celebrate in a variety of ways, I pray that you would give us joy and remind us of your favor. But may we not in the process forget what really makes it matter. The coming of the Christ, the restoration of our souls and the forgiveness of our sins through your sacrifice and through your shed blood. God, continue to speak to us this morning as we sing and celebrate you together. In Jesus' name, amen.